We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Like Kobe in a fourth quarter. This is the Dane Moore NBA podcast brought to you by Blue Wire Podcast coming at you on a Wednesday evening. Um, after a few pods specifically focused on the NBA playoffs tonight, we are going to kind of bring the focus back onto the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, just watching these playoffs, I have kind of been, I don't know, keeping a log of notes or whatever of things that remind me of Timberwolves related things. And so I figured for today's pod, we would have a Timberwolves-focused conversation sort of through the lens of these NBA playoffs. And Jack Borman of Canis Hoopus agreed to join me in doing this tonight. Jack, this is the first, I actually don't remember the last time I did a podcast in person. Oh, no, I've done some. At, we did one at the game. I did a couple with Kyle at the game. But it feels weird to, be, you're, you're actually sitting across from me. Yeah, I think the last time we did that was probably in January. Um, I mean, we did the locker room a few weeks ago, but... Probably in January. I haven't after. told you this yet either. We're doing a locker room after this. We're just gonna, we're just oh. gonna, we're just gonna turn it on. I'm gonna force you to stay around and do it with me. Let's but do it. Sweet. Um, so, so we put together this list. Um, I I threw a couple bullet points down. You threw a couple down of just kind of, I don't know. I think we're both of the same mind. Where you're just kind of watching a player in the playoffs. You're watching a team in the playoffs, and <laughs> kind of the normal Timberwolves thing to do is like. Whoa, these teams are way better. You know, like what are, what are what don't the Timberwolves have that these sort of teams have, and and kind of all down the line, and you can get as specific or as broad with that um, as we want. So so there's a there's a couple different things we put together. You can you can kind of choose which one is the first. I don't know Timberwolves related topic that that's kind of piqued your interest through the playoffs. Yeah, so I think something that that we have here um, that that's been really interesting is following this Atlanta New York series. Um, a lot because, you know, I think that you and I were both pretty high on the Knicks as, you know, as a team to watch. I personally thought the Knicks were going to beat the Hawks in five. The Knicks were 3-0 against Atlanta in the regular season. Well, that's, that's where you started wrong. I know. I've, I've been very wrong with my prediction so far, but it's okay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and as it relates more to the Wolves rather than kind of talking about Tibbs and being terrible as an offensive coach in the playoffs this year um, – I think John Collins' role has been really interesting um, totally. as it relates to, you know, potentially 
leaving Atlanta this offseason. You know, John Collins has reiterated multiple times later on in the winter and early this spring that, that he wants to be in Atlanta. You know, I kind of got the vibe of like Kyrie in Boston. Or kind of like when A-Rod says he's going to want to keep the team here in Minnesota. Like yes, that. yes, Mr. Doomsday, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely think that, that Collins, I mean, I, I don't know necessarily how much he – how much he really believes that I think for John Collins, it's where can I sign my hundred million deal on the dollar? Can we, can we start there? What do you, but, so, so where, what do you think John Collins is going to get this summer? So I want to preface this by saying what I said earlier, and this was, you know, kind of right around the trade deadline when all the John Collins talk was kind of at its peak. And you and I both kind of had thought, you know, there's a legitimately decent chance of this happening. You know, I thought that it was very unlikely that John Collins was going to get $100 million over four years. And the reason why I thought that was because I went around the went around the league looking at, you know, what teams have cap space, what teams don't, how easily can teams clear cap space. If teams don't have cap space, what types of players can they trade? So just a limit of total available money. And then the teams who have cap space, so like the Knicks or the Thunder or the Hornets, you know, teams like that, it, it, John Collins doesn't really make sense on their roster right now. You could maybe argue that for Oklahoma City. Um, but, you know, I, I think with kind of, you know, some of the horses that they have in the stable in the front court, especially with, you know, Kenrich Williams, who they seem really, you know, attached to. And then they also have um, their big center, was in Moses Brown, I yeah, think is his boy. name. And then, you know, if they want to keep developing Poku um, and try and force feed him minutes and continue to be bad the next you know, year or so. Why get um, a good player like John Collins when you could just play Poku, right? Hey, I mean, we're both <laughs> high on Poku. Like, I'm all in on the Poku experience. But, again, like, I just I, – I don't see OKC wanting to tie up such a large sum of money just to kind of say to the Hawks, put your nuts on the table sure. and and match this, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think with a lot of teams, too, this summer, especially in a, in a market where, you know, a team like Oklahoma City is probably going to want to – build in on the margins or bring in, you know, a mid-level exception type of money veteran to kind of help with more with player development and kind of showing guys how to do this thing called the NBA and how to be a professional basketball player rather than, you know, tie up so much of their money potentially for up to... So there's nobody who has, there's nobody of the cap space teams that you think are going to be putting an offer on the table for John Collins is what you're saying. Correct. Because if you want to put an offer on the table for John Collins, I think, what is it? You have 48 hours to match. It might be 72. So it even more proves my point that yeah. a team like that in, in a, in a off season with pretty limited free agents, but there's a decent number of, you know, fringe kind of, you know, fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth men, 20 ish million dollar players. Yeah. And, and that 10 to $20 million range that, that can be pretty impactful. And I, and I don't think a team is going to want to risk, you know, having their money tied up for three days or whatever it is and miss out on one of those guys just for like a, you know, whatever the arbitrary, arbitrary 20, 30, 40% chance of the Hawks not matching that sure. offer sheet is. So, so back- it opens the door. What, what I think you're getting at here is that John Collins's path out of Atlanta is a sign and trade. Yeah. I, I mean, well, for the Timberwolves, it obviously would be, but, mm-hmm. um, 
yeah, there's just, I mean, it just doesn't make sense for, for a team with cap space to sign him. Um, and I think now with these fringe stars and, and outright stars, I mean, you look at what's happened the last three, four, five years, almost exclusively all of these guys are moving around via sign and trade. Yep. Um, and especially for Atlanta, I mean, it would be prudent to try and sign and trade him because one, you can kind of control then who's coming in to replace him and, um, you know, and obviously get compensation. It's not like the NFL where you can get compensatory picks for, you right. know, a player of a certain ilk or contract value leaving. So, so yeah, so I think it, there's a situation where there's might not be a team or there's a limited group of teams that might come out and offer him contract X. But I do think what we will see once he hits the quote-unquote market to whatever degree he does is there will probably be a handful of teams like the Timberwolves that would be interested in pursuing a sign and trade for him. The difficult part that I have with all of this is, is assigning a value to him because he could, I mean, his max is four years, 120. That's what he could sign up to. And I think we're all at the point of agreeing he's not getting that um, if he you know, goes, goes to sign elsewhere, and whether it be in free agency or in a sign and trade. I don't think John Collins is getting $30 million annually. So... Now we start figuring out, and this is where I think it really comes in for the Timberwolves' perspective of does his market value end up being $25 million per year? Or are we talking like what Beasley signed for last year? Or are we talking about which was you know 15 a year? Or are we talking about what Bogdanovich, who's also on his Closer team, signed 18. for 18? Right. Are we, you know, and I think somewhere along that line, it, 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 you know, right? It's just like, should the Wolves go get John Collins? Well, it's like, that in that gray area might, you know, turn the light green or red. And then obviously the other fact of what sort of money would you need to be, would you need to be sending out? But I think these playoffs, what they're kind of illustrating to me is how, not that Collins has been bad, but how expendable he is within the context of that roster and how he just doesn't have a very big role at all. And if anything, some of the, better players on the team like Clint Capella get in the way of a lot of the good things, you know, that he's capable of doing. Yeah. And I think another thing that we've seen in the playoffs in the last few years is that guys who we think who are pending free agents, who we think are going to be these high, you know, price tag guys have really hurt their stock specifically, you know, bigger guys that can potentially get played off the floor if you need to go small um, I mean, look at Harrell last year. I mean, Har we all thought Harrell was going to be like a four-year, $100 million guy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what his contract is He's now, but it's like 10. Yeah. It's like $10 million a year. So, you know, with Collins, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. You know, I don't know if this pod's going to run tomorrow, which would be Thursday. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it seems like the Hawks kind of found something in game four with using Collins. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and I think part of it is also that happens in the playoffs is – we see these really you know, wide swings of how a player is used within a series and how their minutes might fluctuate based on... Particularly for a role player. Particularly for kind of a role player. But, I mean, I'd like to think of Collins as more than a role player. Yeah, but in... In the context in of Atlanta, talent. yeah. In I the mean, context of Atlanta, he's pretty definitively a role player. I mean, right. He in, had a, in terms he had of a, his usage, yeah. Yeah, in terms of his usage. I mean, he had a good, he had a good game four, but overall for the series... We're, Game five is about to tip off here in a little bit. But yeah. through four games, 12 points per game, six boards, one assist. He's taken 14 threes and 18 twos in four games. I mean, that is – the numbers are good, 43% for three, but it's six of 14. You know, right. It's like he just 
is playing like a low usage stretch four, and he's gotten some foul trouble, and so it's only like I think it was like twenty seven or twenty eight minutes a game. But I know this isn't who he is completely, but at the same time, it's like you wonder. You wonder. I would wonder about my team going out and signing that player to a hundred million dollar contract. So, for instance. In my opinion, with Collins, I mean, he got into foul trouble in, in game two and only played 15 minutes. In other games, he played 29, 31, 35. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's playing decent minutes when he's not in foul trouble. I think, too, a, a big part of his impact is just how he's used. I think in games you know, one, two, and three, you saw Collins just kind of floating around when he shared the floor with Capella, and he didn't play all that many minutes when – Bogdan Bogdanovich runs kind of the point with the twos and sure. kind of that lead playmaker, but also primary scorer. And in game four, you saw Collins used. I saw Collins used in three main ways that I thought does a much better job of giving credence to his success given his skill set. So, first of all, when he played with Trey and Capella, they would have him either set a really, really high ball screen for Trey. So Trey can either reject it and get going downhill so he can kind of get in that mid-range floater area where he's just killed the Knicks the whole series. And then you have Capella. And so then, you know, if if Noel cheats up or Gibson cheats up, you have a dump-off pass right there to to um, to Capella. Capella yep. So then Collins can sit atop the key and still maintain floor spacing um, while enabling them to attack a drop effectively. Then the other way you have it is you have when Capella's off the floor and he shares the floor with Trey or with Bogdanovich as kind of that lead primary ball handler, where again, he's setting really high ball screens because they have two athletic guards that are good getting downhill and facilitating or scoring kind of in that mid-range area. So he then, when he rolls, when he receives the ball, a lot of times it's at that nail area. So that area right between the free throw line Mm -hmm. and the three-point line. And from there, Collins is improving as a short roll passer, but Primarily what he does there is then he then, he then puts the ball on the ground, utilizes his athleticism, and draws fouls. So we shot eight free throws in that game four, you know, a lot of which came from that type of action. And then the other thing that he started doing was he really started spotting up in corners, even when he shared the floor. It didn't matter if he shared the floor with Capella um, or if they shared the floor or if he shared the floor or was on the floor without Capella. So, you know, I saw a play for a three where – you know, Capella and Bogdanovich were in this handoff action. Bogdanovich curls around the screen, and because of Capella's role gravity and Bogdanovich's just general scoring gravity, you have that guy in the opposite short corner that's guarding Collins kind of cheat into the block, and Collins is wide Particularly open. when Tibbs is his coach. Yeah, and particularly, you know, with Collins, leaves Collins wide open in the yeah. corner for a three. And so... Doing and then obviously Collins is is a transition threat on on every single possession, whether it's so. I think the question is how how does that skill set would that theoretically fit into the Timberwolves? Like we're taking we're taking all these things that you're saying that are what Collins is looking like in in a playoff concept. You know how does that player apply to these Timberwolves? And I think really if you are of the mind that you know he's just too low usage, he's not productive enough. You have to point to the fact that Capella is getting in the way, not necessarily in a bad way, but just it limits what he can do. So then you kind of apply that to the Timberwolves, right? And you have to ask yourself the question of how much does Cap cannibalize what John Collins can do? Because if because if Clint Capella was removed from this series, like if Clint Capella rolled his ankle in Game Five, Game Six, 
we would see a very a much higher usage John Collins because they would use him at much more even more in those pick and rolls they put him in that dunker spot that you're talking about so it's not that that Collins can't do more than he's currently doing we've seen him do more the question I think is can he do more in a context next to Carl Anthony Towns does Cat free up more for him or does he similarly take away what Capella does and that kind of comes down to the differences between Cat and Capella's game what do you what do you see that how do you see that fitting in specifically like the four or five lock-in yeah I mean piece? I mean the biggest difference obviously is 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 an obvious one is that you know Carl's an insanely good three-point shooter um, who can play anywhere on the floor and Capella is pretty much restricted to playing in that dunker spot Right. Um, or playing as a pick and roll and only roll um, big man. And so Carl, you can you can place Carl in a lot of different you know spots on the floor. Where Capella, there's really you know two places. Mm-hmm. And and I think with Collins in a more spaced out floor with Cat, it would allow him to be more athletic and also would allow Cat to play more as a spot up shooter rather than mm-hmm. a guy that's always forced to you know, create off the dribble or, you know, do his patented pump and go. Um, but, but I mean, with Collins, he rolls so aggressively to the rim that he's able to yeah, collapse be, the defense. He'd be a great roll threat for the yeah, if he's and on if, the Yeah, and if you collapse the defense and then you have Malik Beasley potentially and Carl Anthony Towns on the floor spotted up beside, you know, you're flanking a, a D'Lo and Collins pick and roll or an Ant and Collins pick and roll. And then your three shooters right. are D'Lo, Malik, and Cat, all 40% three-point shooters or guys that can shoot as as well as those types of shooters. So, I mean, the, it, just, thing, it just opens things up. Yeah. I, it, maybe Collins himself isn't all that more impactful than he is right now in Atlanta just looking at his stats. But I do think the entrance of someone like Collins at the four who – can put so much pressure on the rim and give defenses different looks would act would make life a lot easier for specifically Carl Anthony Towns to get more open looks. And I think that that's something that we just haven't seen enough see, of. That, that's not, that's not actually where I, that's not where I'd see the, the impact being. I think the player that John Collins would most positively impact is D'Angelo Russell in, in that high screen and roll game. I think that's, one way or the other, I think the Wolves need to give D'Lo that a a hit hard screener and rolling lob threat. I think that's where he would have the single player who'd have the most positive impact. Maybe Ant. We don't really know like who's. What, I think Ant fits better with Carl just because of yeah. the way that like Collins is more of a I'm setting the pick and I'm flying to the rim, yeah. whereas Carl can be more of that you know set the pick. And kind of be patient and kind of see how Ant Carl, wants to wants to kind of yeah. Man- and we saw that more in the last you know fifteen games sure. of the year. Carl is also wide. Like we we talk about Carl, like people can really fit with him because you can put Cat anywhere on the floor. You can, you know, the the Saunders uh, was that the the nineteen twenty season when they started off really good, and they were ten and ten to start the year. We saw Cat thrive at the top of the key is kind of the, the quarterback there. He's getting off eight threes a game and he was making them at a high clip. He can he can thrive there. Season before that, you know, he kind of was the mid-post guy, right? And he would get these kind of 12-foot sort of post catches that he would square and kind of create from the mid-range there. Or, you know, you can put Cat on the block. You could, you could even spray Cat out to the corner. But pretty much in all of those spots, 
cat really takes up a lot of space in those spots. Does that make sense? Like if you got him at the top, he needs kind of like a lot of the top of the above the break area to kind of operate with. You don't want other people in his space. Yeah. And if he's down and if he's down in the block area too, he kind of needs a lot of space there as well. And if he's penetrating north south from the top towards the, towards the post area, he needs a lot of space to be able to go all the way right in his weird gangly cat sort of way. And and that's why like Gorgie and Cat ultimately didn't work. Like back pre Rosas, right? Do you think they that- would run into each other? And I think that was part of that's a product of Gorgie. Like Gorgie isn't doesn't have as many spaces that he can narrowly right. fit into. But part of the it's not even a problem. It's just who Cat is. He he needs a lot of that center area of the floor. He needs a lot of space in there. And and I quite frankly I don't know what the perfect four man fit is next to somebody who next to a player like Carl who plays that sort of way. I, I will say this though, as it relates to a four spot, I definitely think you, the ideal person can shoot threes. Like yeah, your sure. ideal person can't be somebody that does not shoot threes in any capacity. Because oh, don't get me wrong. John Collins is going to check so many more boxes that, than any other four. That, ever and that's the only thing I want to say, because like when you're talking about giving that, giving cat that space to operate, I think if you have good space on the floor, you know, not only does it give you, does it give cat more room to operate, but it also can create more opportunities for you to get mismatches for him. If you have guys that, you know, I mean, we see this with Brooklyn all the time where Brooklyn will have one guy literally just go run into, it's like half a screen, but half just like getting a switch. And, and that's something that I think you could start to see now with Collins is that if you can play five out on the perimeter and you, and we'll get into this later when, when we talk about Brooklyn, but you know, you can just force a switch essentially. And if you want cat at the top of the key, you can have Collins go set that switch or D or really anybody. And I think Collins just gives you that added threat of like somebody you can't just leave wide open in the corner. And I think when you, ha- when you keep that in mind, I think it, the kind of the chest of opportunities and of plays you can run of, of, of different, you know, types of actions that you can base sets off of, um, I think really expands when you have a guy that's as capable of a corner shooter as Collins is. Totally. I And I, I think Collins, I can't think Collins would be Cat's best fit yet of power forwards next to him. But I don't think we know what the perfect I fit is next I completely, I completely agree with that. Like, it, it's, it's, it's just kind of hard to know because Cat will kind of need to, like, amalgamate to, to what that is. But we also know Cat can, like, overly do that in, in some ways. I just, I just don't. If you're going to be paying him a hundred million dollars, which is ultimately what this whole opportunity cost equation is, are we going to be giving a hundred million dollars to John Collins or whatever you want to call it, eighty somewhere between twenty plus million dollars a year, and you're going to be doing a sign and trade to acquire that player, which would might see you sending out Malik Beasley, might you know. Whatever, you're going to have to be sending out something. Not a lot. It's a sign and trade, so it won't be that much. But still, I just feel like I want to know. I want to know that that guy fits well and and will very maximize Cat. And the other thing that I want to mention, too, is like we can't just neglect the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. So I I think... Well... (laughs) We'll get into that, too, later. We'll get into that, too, later. But 
Um, you know, the one th- the one other note I wanted to mention with Collins, and I mentioned this when I did a huge write-up on Collins right before the trade deadline that's at canisupas.com. You can just Google John Collins, Canisupas, it'll come up. Um, that I think John Collins is actually a really, really capable backside defender. And that I John Collins that. is freakishly athletic. And it's Mislabeled allowed- as a bad defender. Correct. And I think that it's actually allowed Capella to show a little bit more and just occupy space and just clog shit up with his Mm -hmm. huge frame and arms in the pick and roll, which has really helped Trey because New York really in this series has not been able to single out Trey and viciously just go after him, which is something that you see a lot in the playoffs and something that Timberwolves fans and understandably so are worried about with with Mm -hmm. D'Lo. And a big reason why is because they feel confident in Collins' ability to rotate well and fill in kind of that, you know, rim protector role if if Capella is occupied, occupied further up the floor towards the three-point line and, and, and up towards half court. And, I, you know, he's not, you know, he's gotten into foul trouble because I think sometimes he knows how athletic he is and he tries to get a little too aggressive. But I think in, in a context of the Timberwolves, like if Collins was on that team, you know, I think you and I are both in agreement that Carl is very underrated as a defender in space and arguably is better as a defender in space than he is at one protecting the rim. And that would allow Carl to, you know, get out in space more and for the Timberwolves to be more aggressive in the pick and pick and roll defense, which you know, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think that that's kind of yeah. where your head's at in terms of where you'd like to see the Timberwolves defense progress to. And, that, and having someone like Collins would also allow you to put McDaniels at the three. Mm-hmm. And then you have three guys. Well, I mean, I don't know where Delo's at, but if you, if you want to get into uh, Ryan Saunders' effective height, you know, thing, um, you, you could very well have four guys with wingspans damn near or over seven feet tall, mm-hmm. just with your front court of McDaniels, Collins, and Cat, all of whom can also shoot threes and put it on the deck and score. So Yeah, I and... It's, it's, it's interesting to think about. No, for sure. And this is, and I, I did a pod about this. And when I really dug into film of John Collins and, and continue to watch him, I, he's a, I'm like, I'm not an anti John Collins person. I, I think it would be, I think it'd be a great connection for this team to find what, what I kind of go back to whenever I think about John Collins and particularly when I'm in an underwhelming stretch of John Collins watching, which is right happening right now. I just ask myself like, if you brought in John Collins, is that enough? You now have Cat, Ant, D'Lo, and John Collins as your fourth to best player. To do what? To, to achieve your goals of being a, you know, a team that can make the playoffs next year, call it that, and you know, uh, maybe another year from now be a, a four seed or, or something like be Be moving in that direction. And ultimately, like, you would like to think the goal is to build a, you know, a, a that a, a organization that's moving in the direction of a championship. And, and it's not that I don't think the team would be substantially better with John Collins. I think what I just come back to is if you go get this guy for $20, $25 million, gotta be damn sure you gotta be damn sure. And I just don't know if it's enough talent. I just don't know if it's enough talent. And I think if it were me, and granted, we don't know what the dollar value is. We don't know what the actual trade would be. But just generally speaking, I think I would keep the powder dry and wait for something better than John Collins before making, you know, before really committing 
a substantial sum of money or if it had to be, you know, what do you think is a substantial picks. form of money or amount of money? If it's 400, if, if, if he's, yeah, see, I, I don't think it would get that high personally, but if that's on the table, I probably would agree with you on that. Like, so if, that's why that's, I started this whole thing at the beginning. You started talking about Moses Brown. Like, what do you think? The, yeah. So my point was that a lot of people at that time thought for that. I was crazy for thinking that John Collins was not going to get four for a hundred. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why I thought that at the time was just because, like, when you think of, like, a team's big three, right. like, John Collins is not really mentioned in Atlanta as, like, their, like, yeah. big three. You know? Like, when you go around the league and you think what? that. Well, how much do you think he's going to get? I think he's going to get in the neighborhood of, like, 20 to $23 million a year tops. Like, yeah. I would not be surprised if he ends up around four for seven, in between, like, four for 72 or, like, four for 84 in that, like you know, 18 to $21 million. Like mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, and, and that one again, and that's why I said at the beginning, then it becomes less like it, it hurts less, but still it is one of your bullets. Now, now here's the thing. Can you, tr- can you make him your Malik Beasley bullet? Right? Like switching. I don't know if it's a trade for them or maybe Malik goes somewhere else. Like you only have so much money here at the end of the day. And and whether that's to add somebody else down the line. Like, I have a problem with getting John Collins if it precludes you from pursuing a player that's better than John Collins if they come up at the trade deadline the next year I, or the subsequent I, I'm with you on that. I hear you. And, and I don't know. These are like, these aren't the details. I wouldn't be like, oh my God. If the Timberwolves signed John Collins for like four years, 100, I would be like, okay, cool. Now they just are going to need to, one, they're going to need to make this work with Collins. And two, like, what's the next move? We're going to have to get more creative about, then I think you got to start thinking about how do you make that group better? Now you got to really start considering maybe D'Angelo Russell needs to be upgraded upon at some point. Maybe if you didn't trade Malik Beasley in that, you I think you got to upgrade that. You know, you start, it puts more pressure, I think, on your subsequent moves if you make this It's kind of kicking the can down the road in a sense. Sure. But and I would like same, to just kick the empty can down the road, if that makes sense. Yeah, but at the same time, like... Denver last night won a playoff game with, in my opinion, what is the greatest playoff performance I've ever seen live on TV in my (laughs) lifetime from Dame starting as their backcourt, Monte Morris and Austin Rivers. And we're sitting here worried about talent. Like the Timberwolves, like not to like blow up your spot on that, but like D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, Jaden McDaniels, John Collins, Cat. That okay, is, okay. Th- that's Pause like right a, there. Those are your starting five next year. Are the Timberwolves going to make the playoffs? For sure. I, no, they're I, not going to for sure make the playoffs. I, I would I would be willing to bet a very large sum of money. Like for me, like I, I would place it at like if I were just setting like odds. I'm not at, saying it's even under 50%. I'm just saying it's like. I would say like they, 80 to 85% is where I'm at right now. If you have that great. team. That'd if you have f- that team. Especially then too, you think about Bolmero coming over, Nas. I mean, Bulmero's a legit player. Like, I know you, you probably, I don't know how much Bulmero you've watched, mm. but in my opinion, like, I, I, I see it, I, I, it's very hard for me to believe that Bulmero will not be, like, a legitimately very good role player. Mm-hmm. And then you have, and then you have Nas, and then I think Jalen Noel takes it. Like, I, there's just a lot of guys there that, like, I legitimately think are pretty decent role players. Like I, I think that Jalen Noel could have an Austin Rivers yeah. type impact if he stays healthy in the sense that like 
you just have volume shooters. And if he gets hot, like, I, can, and it's not even that I don't think the group is like talented at all. I think it's just, they might need to have a better record than the nuggets next year to make the playoffs. So they might have to have a better record than the blazers next year to make the and, and by playoffs, I should say, like, I'm talking like get in the play in tournament. That's that, like, different one thing. of the 10 teams. Yeah. So I would agree with that. Because yeah. so by playoffs, Those you're getting like top six teams then, like eight. straight in. Well, oh, I mean, well, seven and eight is no different than 10. Yeah, okay. I get 10. what you're saying. Like, yeah. So I'm thinking within that first 10. <laughs> I love the play in personally, yeah. but at any rate, like, that, well, so everyone, I, I everyone listening to this 10, is, is so. way going to like your side of it too. I'm not trying to be like. You're just saying. I'm somebody who's saying, trust me, the money's going to come. And you're saying, show me the money. And I don't think that that's a bad way of looking at it because we've all been sitting here saying rah, rah, and you haven't necessarily. And we collectively, the rah, rah guys have not had a whole lot to say rah, rah about other than Anthony Edwards. Speaking of show me the money, we're going to do an ad break. Have you, have you uh, seen this book in all seriousness? I have not, no. So Jake Fisher, um, he writes for Bleacher Report, previously at Sports Illustrated. He just wrote this book. It's called Built to Lose. Um, it's it's about tanking in the NBA over the past decade. And I was just talking to Jake, who I've met in the past, and bought his book. And I bought it through a subtext bookstore, who is now sponsoring the podcast. And um, I went in to subtext this weekend to kind of, well, to pick up the book and to to check out the store. And um, so I'm going to be reading that. Jake's going to come on the pod. We're going to talk about it. Apparently, I haven't got to it yet, but apparently there's a whole like Kevin Love, Andrew Wiggins tanking story in there that I, I don't know, I haven't hit. He's going to, we'll be able, we'll be able to talk about it on there. Um, but anyways, Subtext is sponsoring the podcast. You can, you can use Subtext. Subtext has a super clean mobile website where that's where I bought the book um, at subtextbooks.com. Um, Actually, again, went down to the store. It's located in downtown St. Paul by Rice Park in the St. Paul Hotel. Cool. So maybe, we'll do a, maybe we'll do a live podcast there sometime. Let's you know? do it. Let's do it. Um, but in the meantime, if you're looking to buy a book this summer, um, it's a whether it's this Jake's book um, or any book, it's just a good place. It's an easy way to support local business by not using Amazon, right? <laughs> you know, so just just use the website subtextbooks.com if you're buying any book for. Um, for your book club or whatever this summer. And when you shop at subtextbooks.com, you get free shipping on any order over $30 by using code Dane at checkout. Subtextbooks.com, code Dane at checkout for free shipping on your order. Matt, thank you um, for the connection at Subtext. is actually a fan of the show and kind of hooked it up. So head over to Subtext Books and don't forget to use code Dane for free shipping on that $30 order. All right, Jack. Bullet point two, where are we going? So we're going to the value of, of mid-level exception guys in the playoffs. So I, I think that this kind of rides on the back of, of kind of the rah-rah are you in the playoffs conversation because I think something that, that I've personally seen in the playoffs is that, is that all of these MLE guys, you know, that the Timberwolves fans, that we've seen Timberwolves fans be interested in the past. Dude, um, we were – you and I were both – I don't remember when it was, but we talked about it in the summertime. We're like, what the hell? The Timberwolves didn't use the mid-level exception. Why didn't they? Because right? it was literally free money. Yeah. And they did. I mean, at least not going over this. I mean, they didn't use any of it. You, I mean, because they still had, 
you know, however much, like, what was it? One point, whatever million dollars yeah. above the luxury tax. But I mean, you have time to get out of the luxury tax, the trade mm-hmm. deadline, if you need to, but so any, we wanted rate. them to go for a, one of those Jay Crowders, Jermichael Greens, Paul Millsaps, Derek Jones, Jr. The guys that they did pursue with the mid-level exception this summer and didn't ultimately lock the deal down. And I just think what's kind of played out, sorry, cut into what you were just saying, but what's kind of played out is that those guys have kind of had a range of impact, right? From Crowder's clearly an impactful player who signed for the mid-level this summer. But you can go down kind of the other side of the spectrum, Derek Jones Jr., who hasn't, I mean, he has has been completely out of the Blazers' rotation in in this playoff series. And so I don't know if it's like a bullet dodge situation with the Wolves, but it's kind of started to get, and that's why this was my bullet point. <laughs> it started getting me to think about, you know, what exactly is the value of the mid-level exception? We, I've always kind of universally looked at it as almost like a positive. Like it's for, you know, use that. Like it's a way to get a cheap guy for at least their value. And I think what's kind of playing out is sometimes these guys aren't even worth that nine or 10 million bucks, right? Yeah, and I think with Rosas, you know, Shout out to him because I think he felt that there were a few guys that he felt confident in. And if he wasn't going to be able to get any of those guys that he didn't feel like he should just throw and commit money to somebody and tie money up where it didn't need to be. Like, I, I think he very easily could have thrown another four or five million dollars at somebody of Wancho's type where like right. you're kind of taking a risk in that he could work out. He could not. If he doesn't like that's a somewhat substantial amount of money, especially if that's you know, going to be the difference between you being in the luxury tax and not being in the luxury tax. So, you know, in, in hindsight, it ended up being a good decision, I think, to not, you know, use money because you can't obviously like coerce someone into signing with you. But right. um, yeah, I mean, and, and it was rumored, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, that the guys the Timberwolves were closest to getting were Derek Jones Jr. and Paul Millsap. Yeah, I, w- I would say that's true. And so... You have one of them who still And I start. put your Michael Green in there too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, your Michael Green personally was the guy who I wanted the most because I thought that he would be the most gettable. And I also really liked his skill set with mm-hmm. how much he shot threes last year and the clip that he did with, with the Clippers. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, Derek Jones Jr. was another guy who I was pretty high on, especially on the defensive end, considering, you know, again, kind of out along that Collins thing where, you know, you could have him play on the back end and just try and jump up and, and make life difficult for guys at the rim. And, you know, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, <laughs> another guy we've <laughs> we've labored about on this pod, um, now is playing minutes over him at for, for Portland in the playoffs. So it's just kind of <laughs> funny <circle>. how <laughs> it comes a re- really full circle with, with yeah. the whole conversation. But, um, yeah, but my main point with, with this bullet was just that you know, your question here was, you know, should we kind of temper expectations for, for the Wolves as it relates to using the mid-level exception this summer? And, and my take on that is absolutely. Like, I think the mid-level, ex- being able to use the mid-level exception and sign a solid, safe role player with that, with that money is a prize of being a playoff team or having a roster that is very clearly prime to make a That's jump the Jay Crowder, like right? the Suns did with Crowder. Yeah. Yep. And I think it helps too with Crowder that they also committed to Crowder for three years. So he's like three for 30. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I think the I Wolves think, was just one with, or, or Jones to sign for one. In exactly. Portland. Yeah. And I think the security probably too was also you right. know, an added thing there. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Cause I think we might, 
I could see I could see an offseason playing out this summer where they don't use the mid level again. I think that's probably more likely than not. Because well so unless the number on they, the mid level unless they land in the top three. Because then you're looking at trading Rubio and you'll have some money left over. Yeah. 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 So there's just different different ways. You can use up to it's about almost ten million bucks. It's basically like a coupon for ten million dollars to use over the salary cap space that you have. The problem with the Wolves is they don't have currently don't have $10 million in space below the luxury tax. So if they were to use this, maybe gift cards, the better, the better term there, this gift card, then they would go into luxury tax. So if it's already this somewhat risky proposition, right? And to be clear, like somewhat risky, this isn't like, you're not going to screw yourself by sending someone to the mid level. But if it's not, if it's not a lock, like, I just there's been guys who haven't done much when they've when they've signed for that. I think we remember the Jay Crowders and what Jay Crowder's doing right now. We remember PJ Tucker in Houston when he signed the four he signed the mid level for four years there with them. And it's like, oh my God, those are if they're not part of the core, they are strong infantry that surround the core. And I just think I've I've always sort of overrated that kind of blurred by the fact that I've seen PJ Tucker be impactful. I've seen those out there. And you haven't thought about the guys who haven't worked out. Yeah, right, right. And so so now I guess just as I go into the off season, it just as I think about the Wolves really meaningfully improving their roster, I just don't really see paths, likely paths to meaningful improvement that don't come through trade. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you know, I I can't remember off the top of my head if the Timberwolves had the biannual exception this year. They do. Yeah, that's another like three and a half. Four. Yeah, I, I think that that's something kind of along the lines of what they did with Jake Lehman two summers ago. I mean, that was also technically a sign and trade, mm-hmm. um, even though it was a baby one. Um, where I, I think that they try and acquire one of those like Vanderbilt, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, you know, type of guys where it's like you're not really giving up much to take a bet on it, but sure. You know, it, it could end up being the difference because I think the other thing that you look at with these playoff teams, ones that are really successful versus the ones that really aren't, um, you know, within the playoffs themselves, like you think about Milwaukee with Bobby Portis and Bryn Forbes, like those are guys that they're committing like, like 3 million, bucks really left. small values to, I think Portis was the BAE, right? Yeah. Really small values to on the margins that are really hitting for them. I mean, Bryn Forbes was Bryn Forbes scored more points in that series than Jimmy Butler did. How's that for a talking point? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then you look at like Derek Jones Jr., who's not in the rotation for Portland, and Portland's really struggling right now, even though they very clearly have more talent mm-hmm. than than Denver does. So I think that I think that we focus so much about the top end of the Timberwolves roster as it relates to you know breeding playoff success, and that's really important. Like when you look at you know, Denver specifically, like Denver, they're totally carried by the top end of their, of their roster. But you look at, you know, other teams like a Milwaukee who, you know, they have that top end talent. Sure. But I mean, they're able to beat teams with their bench and their bench consistent can consistently outperform other teams bench because they have two guys like that, that are consistently showing up in the playoffs. And I think that, right. you know, the Timberwolves, Sure, they need to improve the top end talent of the roster too, but they also really need to make sure that they don't have these like one spot specialists off the bench. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's why Portland's struggling a little bit because they have Cantor's, this offensive rebounding guy, but can't defend the rim. You have Ronda Hollis Jefferson, who, you know, you can play him anywhere on defense and he's a good rebounder, but like doesn't give you anything offensively. And when you have too many of these guys that, you know, are specialists, if you will, you struggle with, um, you know, teams really being able to pinpoint that you know, specialist weakness when they're on the floor, especially over the course of a seven game series in the playoffs. And I think that's something that we're, is going to be interesting to follow as we move forward in the playoffs with guys that, you know, have bench pieces that or teams that have bench pieces that are specialists and how they get attacked. Right. So I think that kind of pivots into another one of our, our bullet points, which is kind of this idea that I've had where outside of Culver, Rosas has done a good job of uncovering players in the draft, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether that be McDaniels, Nas Reed, you know, Jalen Noel, and they're players who we don't know yet, but look like they're trending into, to your point, like being multidimensional players. Like Jaden McDaniels looks like he might be able to be, looks likely to be a player who's going to be multidimensional, probably a two-way player and impactful in that sort of way. And now Nas Reed, granted, there was they invested less in him being undrafted, but they went after this, you know, what they thought was a gem out of the out of the draft, and they kind of polished that off. And now they think they can have a player who's you know a multi-dimensional backup center. And I think you could throw you no know, Jalen Noel in the mix there too. But kind of what I've been thinking about with the Wolves in that sort of way is I want them to apply that mining for gems idea to players already in the NBA, Mm -hmm. like 24, 25 year olds, right? Guys who are, who are kind of more in the cat D low range, because quite frankly, I don't really care that much if the wolves like get a good second round pick this year, like find a way to trade in the second round and like, Oh, here's an another interesting guy that we get excited about in the preseason. Like the wolves don't need any more of those. Like they, they got that right. Like they've got, they're 22 and under group of guys. What they need is vets more ready to kind of play right away. And when I've been watching this Washington-Philadelphia series, and quite frankly, Washington kind of on their whole stretch to get into the playoffs, like Daniel Gafford, I think is like exactly the physical embodiment of what I'm trying to, whatever I'm trying to call this, right? Call it a Gafford, you know, like a, a guy who, who can come in and is on, he's like, he's on a minimum contract right now that's non-guaranteed for next year. But you feel like, oh no, this is a player who is, you could put him in a rotation right now in the NBA. He just hasn't been getting the opportunity in Chicago and he might actually, you know, go make a difference. That's what I, at least one of those, I want Gerson Rosas to, to find this summer. And quite frankly, that's a hard, you know, that's a, that's a hard thing to kind of, fine but particularly when you're pinched in the ways we just went through as the wolves are with like don't even know if they can use the mid-level exception like they need that more than anything it feels no not more than anything that's hyperbolic but like it really feels like it would go a long ways if they could get a guy like daniel gafford on their team for that cheap and with multiple years left on his deal yeah i think a, a team that i look at in terms of the way they're able to do this through free agency um are the suns I mean, the Suns, you look at the Suns roster. We're going to have the same player. <laughs> I, maybe we will, maybe we won't. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just looking at the Suns roster, 
Every single player on this team, with the exception of Jalen Smith, in my opinion, could feasibly be in an NBA rotation. They just have a bunch of dudes that are on minimum contracts, Mm -hmm. like that are really solid players, like Campaign, Torrey Craig, Frank Kaminsky, I mean, Frank, whatever, Lynx and Galloway, Etwan Moore, like those are all, or like Javon Carter too, Mm -hmm. like are all guys that, you know, have been really impactful for them, maybe not necessarily in this series, but over the course of the entire season that have all played a role on that team. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think, you know, being able to find those guys that are willing to, you know, come along for the ride to make it, maybe it's like one guy steps up for two or three games and can kind of help carry the momentum, you know, in that kind of, you know, kind of the danger zone we were talking about with the Wolves, kind of from that two-minute mark left in the third quarter to that nine-minute mark in the fourth quarter when the starters come back. And, like, guys that can, on any given night, be the guy that can really help fuel your team for that three, four, five-minute stretch um, is a good way to look at it because they're vets that understand that that's a crucial part of the game. Right. Um, and so as it relates to, like, guys that I had on my list, I mean, I, I didn't initially have anybody on the Suns. but I Well, think- I guess I was going to say – Torrey Craig is a free agent, so he he isn't the Gafford in the sense as you're going to trade for him and he has years left on his deal, but it's kind of the idea, I guess, of what the Suns did to get Torrey Craig this got him year. for free. They got, him, they got him for free. I mean, he's got to pay his contract, but like... Um, they gave up no asset to get him. Exactly. And that's that's the exact move I would love to see the Wolves go make for Torrey Craig. Like, I think Torrey Craig would be, outside of McDaniels, if you put him on this team right now, would be the next best big, right? Defender. I just think probably overall, I think he's better the next than best big behind cat other, other than cat. Like, I, I don't know if I classify Torrey Craig as big, but he plays power forward for them. He started at power forward for them. I actually looked it up. It was 87% of his minutes. According to cleaning the glass was that power forward. Well, it's a small ball. I mean, it's, it's how Phoenix uses power forward. Jake Crowder yeah, is that's fair. That's Jay Crowder fair. is a power forward. He's like yeah, my height. That's you know? fair. It's like it, it, it's just you're stealing minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And, I would just I would just like to go get that and quite and I don't know maybe you found some more guys if you I think you put together a list of a couple names there but I would just like to say that this is an easier said than done like oh for sure practice for them but it's to also do. like if you sit down and do this it is legitimately hard to comb through rosters mm-hmm. and think one is he going to be back on this team like the yeah. team they're currently on two can the Wolves feasibly trade for him? Like go in the trade machine, put in mm-hmm. your salaries and, yeah, then, right. and then sit here and say, does it actually work for the other team too? Mm-hmm. Or is the guy a free agent? And do you think that there's another team who's better? That's already in the playoffs. Like that right could, now. Yeah. Offer the same money and he's just going to choose them. Exactly. Like, yeah. Torrey like, Craig. That'll probably happen to Torrey Craig. Yeah. And especially like with the way that he's played for the Suns, the way the Suns have used him. Yeah. I mean, it's the type of guy that the Lakers are like, Give me, like, come here. Like, let's go. You're coming along for the ride. Like, you're trying to, we're trying to get a ring for you. Like, you know what I mean? I we mean, don't have enough big guys. So. Yeah. I mean, the, the <laughs> oldest guy that I had on this list, I think, is 25. Okay. Read me a couple. So I have Grant Williams as number one as a guy who's played okay. legitimate playoff minutes for Boston, but his minutes this year have been in the low teens and wow. he kind of got played off the floor in this Brooklyn series. And especially if that's regular season DMPs. Yeah. I mean, and if that's a team that's really trying to clean up on the margins, like I could see them trying to get a second round pick for a guy like, mm-hmm. you know, and if we trade a future second round pick for a guy that has playoff experience, like, sure, I'm good mm-hmm. with that. Troy Brown jr. Is another one where I didn't put him down. I literally, I 
Do but I mean, he's, I think he's probably the best candidate in that mold of a guy who has legitimate potential to be much better, I think, than the role that he's played. I think Chicago kind of had a similar idea with him where I yeah. think Chicago and Washington kind of had flipped ideas where Chicago was ready to get rid of Daniel Gafford and Washington was kind of ready to get rid of Troy Brown Jr. Um, you know, and he, and he played decent minutes for them through, through the end of the year. And I think that part of that too had to deal with, you know, Zach Levine having that COVID um, right. you know, exit. And then, uh, Brandon Clark is another one. He's been getting DNPs in the playoffs for Memphis. Um, so that's another one. And then the, the last one I had was kind of a joke, but, um, what is it? You're going to love this bowl bowl. Okay. <laughs> bowl bowl. I mean, I just, I, I think that that's the type of guy where like, I mean, it's exactly what we're talking about. It's actually a good example of that. Cause what does he have? He's like, got a, he's on like a second round, kind of like a goop to specialty type deal. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's the type of guy where like the Timberwolves have now kind of bred Vanderbilt and Nas through that, you know, Iowa system. Yeah. Sorry. I meant to say that Vanderbilt is the example of Rosa's having done this before he Cor- went and got correct. Vanderbilt in that deal where it was like, it was kind of like a swap for Kata. But yeah. Vanderbilt had multiple deals years left on his deal. Also at the minimum, you're like, oh, who is this guy? Yeah, and I should note too that guys like Grant Williams or Troy Brown, um, I think Aaron Holiday and and maybe Brandon Clark too, like those guys only have one year left on their deal. But still, it's like a prove it year before then you have to, you know, extend a qualifying offer and then become a restricted free agent. So at any rate, it's it's the same thing where, you know, Vanderbilt only had the one year left when they traded for him essentially because mm-hmm. i mean the season was pretty much done after yeah, that point that's true so it's kind of but it's it's the same, it's the same idea. thing yeah yeah so those are kind of my ideas i mean i also had aaron holiday on the list but i i just don't know i mean if aaron holiday moves the needle i mean he kind of killed the wolves in a couple of games <laughs> this year but like right i you know would he really move the needle more than say mm-hmm. a ricky rubio right like if you're looking at like if ricky rubio is replacement level is he above replacement level? I, I, I don't think so. I don't really think putting Holiday in Rubio's place would, cha- on the floor at least, would change anything. Yeah, I'm with you there. That was also a, a tricky part of this exercise. Where I was like, I'm trying to find players and I'm trying to pl- find players that fit the Wolves. And we all, the, the whole Wolves calculus is just when you, super hard. As when you ask to check the boxes of like role, yeah. <laughs> yeah. other suitors, like it, the list becomes so small. So the way I kind of went with it, because not that, not that I would have predicted this with Daniel Gafford, and I've done, there's a million other guys that, you know, the guys you just like on League Pass, where you're like, what? I'd like this guy. He should be playing more. Like, once upon a time, Lou Dort was that for me. And, and again, a long list of other guys who flamed out and weren't any good. But Daniel Gafford was totally that for me when I was watching Chicago at the beginning of this year. And, and so the way I kind of just, like, went with this was... I just started going through teams and looking at guys who, who I've always, I've always thought of a little bit higher than it seems like their perception or their salary is and are at the end of, end of their sort of deal. And, and for me, I just kind of put together like a list of them. There's some like in, I can list off of like Grayson Allen and like Daniel house are kind of like in that. You don't need to sell me on Grayson Allen. I've, I've sat <laughs> no, in this no, no, living no. room those talking are, about Those Grayson are more Allen in more. your like actually they're actually on rookie deals sort of guys or like they're, they're more established. I went even like lower in the barrel down to guys like Furkan Korkmaz 
who's who's a guy who I've always liked. He's not a good defender, but has at least has size and can shoot the ball. And another guy. This isn't in the playoffs, but I I've like I've always liked Mike. Not always since he's been in Orlando, I've really liked Michael Carter Williams, and I think he's like pretty much just a better version of like what Josh Okogie is on this team defensively. And I think that's an important role for this team. And then an even better version of that, I think, and this is, again, just a player that I've, I've always liked to it, the things have never really clicked together for, is DeAndre Bembry from Toronto, who he is in that Gafford sort of thing where he has another minimum year on his deal next year and then becomes an unrestricted free agent. And, and I just think if you find one of those guys and they work and they become the eighth man in this team, I think that just goes a really long way. In, in terms of the financials. Now, if you bump it up a little bit more and you you aim a little bit higher and you start talking about Grayson Allen, you start talking about even higher, Chris Boucher, who's on who's has a non-guaranteed or, or year. I would actually put Grayson Allen higher on that list than Boucher. Sure, but they're right there. And then, I don't know, where would you put Mitchell Robinson? He was like kind of, I think he was the sexiest name that I wrote down. Yeah, I mean, I think with Mitchell Robinson, the problem is that you know, New York can kind of claim plausible deniability in negotiations because he's been hurt and they can say, you know, oh, we still have, you know, oh, we still have big plans for him. Yeah. And he's been hurt and we haven't really been able to show it, even if kind of they're holding like, you know, a two of spades and a seven of diamonds, you know, or that's how they view him, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I mean, Nerland's Noel has played the Mitch Robinson role so damn well that I, I think that like if Mitch Robinson came back today and was a hundred percent and I don't think he'd play in the series. No, yeah. I, don't, I don't think he would either. I mean, which I, is crazy the, because we're a year ago. People are talking about like, you know, selling the farm for, for Mitchell Robinson. Yeah, And like, I got like death threats on Twitter from like, because <laughs> I mean, I, there's a couple of New York bloggers that, that I've kind of become, you know, become buddies with. And so if I tweet something and about Mitch and they'll interact with it and be like, dude, like take your crack and sell it somewhere else, you know, then all their followers will come and just be like, dude, if you're in New York, you like can I'm, sell it here on my podcast. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, the other thing that the other guy that I was looking at um, is, you know, within the, the Knicks itself is, is actually Frank Nilakina. Because Frank Nilakina seems like a Tibbs guy by all intents and purposes. Like, seems like a guy that Tibbs would love and should be playing, especially over Alfred Payton. In my opinion, he's just a way better version of what Alfred Payton can do because Frank can spot up and shoot threes. And he's going to be a free agent or qualifying offer. He'll get a qualifying offer. Restricted free agent. So, restricted free agent. But, I mean, he hasn't played on the Knicks, and that Knicks team – has kind of just been like a rotating door of role players throughout the year. Like the start of the year, they had different guys and now they have, you know, D Rose and Noel playing heavier minutes now. And throughout the whole thing, like Nilakina hasn't really played a whole lot. And like Nilakina seems like a guy where like, if he goes somewhere else, like he could, he could play way more than 10 minutes a game. I think in the wolves, if, if he continues to shoot, you know, the last two years, he shot 32% from three and 49, 48% on one and a half threes a game. Like if he can shoot half, split that down the middle and shoot something like 37, 38% and play with the point of attack defense that he can play with, sign me up. Like if that, well, if that, well, yeah, if that cost was, me $4 million how many, a year. Okay, you have Lil Kina's total stats up right now, right? 
Yeah. Do you want me to I want, filter it to total? To uh, yeah. Make, I want to, to know how many total threes that's all on. 48 threes this year. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. Over his career, he's 33% on 450 threes. Yeah. I, sign me up for Frank Nilakina if I can know that he will be an average catch and shoot player and bring point of attack defense. I just don't think, I don't know if we know those things, but I'm not, bringing, shi- I'm not shitting on your idea. I literally just talked about Michael Carter Williams. You know, like, yeah. th- th- this, is, this is the whole idea. It's, I did keep my mouth closed when when you're making that point, and I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna protest. You know how I feel about about Josh, but I'm not gonna protest. Oh no, I I also like Josh Okoge too. <laughs> and quite frankly, I think this team could use two like two point of attack defender guys like that. Yeah, you know, I mean, and, just... and maybe that maybe it's Jared Vanderbilt. Like I I loved that when you when it wasn't obvious who the Wolves' point of attack defender was gonna be. Like for the past two years, it's like. All right, who's Josh got tonight? You know, now it's like, oh, well, there's Jaden in the mix. You could put Vanderbilt on the point of attack. You could put a Kogi out there. Yeah. I don't even know who the best one would be. Like, that, I think this team probably needs that, you know? Yeah. So if, if we want to get nitpicky here, Nilakina, small sample size. 99th percentile on 34 catch and shoots. He shot 50%. 34%. On the, on the 48 of them? 30, 34 of them actually were catch and shoot. So <laughs> we'll, we'll keep that in mind with, with Nilakina there. But um, yeah, I mean, as you know, kind of moving on with, with shooters, um, you know, you, you had in here that, that you wanted to talk about kind of how we look at Malik Beasley in relation to someone of a comparable salary and somewhat of a, of a comparable projected role, if you will, with the team at full strength, like kind of how Bojan, or excuse me, Bogdan Bogdanovich is, is in Atlanta. Let's uh, let's get to that, but let's take a quick break first. Sweet. Look, no one's perfect. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash more now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com more and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com more now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com more. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. If you love listening to podcasts, if you love listening to this podcast, nothing's stopping you from grabbing a mic and starting your own show. There's no better place to start hosting your own podcast than Blue Wire Hustle. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take their podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is also the perfect place. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art for your pod, Q&As with Blue Wire's podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, all those listening platforms. And the best part is you can get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate any hosting site will charge you to just have the initial setup done for your podcast. So if you're ready to do more than just listen to me, talk about hoops, then make your voice heard in Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join 
Check out the description box in this episode to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com slash join. All right, Jack. So yeah, when I've been, again, as you said at the beginning, like I think this Knicks Hawk series has been an intriguing from a basketball standpoint and also fun from a New York sort of standpoint. And, and then us as Timberwolves media people, like you have the connection to Tibbs and Taj and Derek and whatever. So I think it's, you know, I, we've watched all these games. We've watched it attentively. And, and really for me in the series, outside of just being like, oh, okay, John Collins is a role player, I guess, right now. Other than that, the thing that's really stood out to me is Bogdan Bogdanovich and how impactful he's been. And I think there's like... I connect Bogdanovich in my head to Malik Beasley because they're both free agents this summer at the same position. And Bogdanovich got the four-year $72 million, like initially from Milwaukee and then from Atlanta. And Malik got his four-year $60 million, right? And so there's this idea that they're in a similar tier. I think we go in, I mean, just on the dollars and so they signed the yeah. same summer, whatever. Uh, and... And so part of me goes like, man, if Malik Beasley was doing what Bogdan Bogdanovich has been doing in these playoffs, like, then I got to have to eat a lot of the words I've said about suggesting, you know, trading Malik Beasley, you know, over, over the years and that, because that player, if Bogdanovich on the Timberwolves, what he's done in these playoffs would be so impactful. And, and I guess to the watching the playoffs to the Timberwolves lens sort of idea is, is I'm just like, what would Beasley be doing in the playoffs right now? I, I, and I struggle to kind of pin that down of like, would Malik Beasley be this like cranking up volume? Th- like Bogdanovich is, is shooting nine threes a game and making like 38% of them in the 40, playoffs. 45. So yeah. Okay. Even better. Um, like if Malik was that, like that's great. I just, I just don't know because we're also seeing Bogdanovich be a really important defensive player for New York or guarding New York, guarding Derrick Rose specifically. And, and I guess, yeah, that's just where my head at is that like, is Malik Beasley as good as Bogdan Bogdanovich or is there a pretty big chasm between the two of them? So I think there's a pretty big chasm between the two. Um, and, and I agree. And I, and I think a lot of people probably don't understand or or don't like watch defense close enough or like understand the impact that a guy can make defensively. But like Malik Beasley is a generous six, four and he's got a six, seven wingspan. Bogdanovich is legit six, six and he has a six, 11 wingspan. Like that is those, those are wildly different when you look at just what they can do defensively and how you can use them defensively. And then when you flip that on the offensive end of the floor, I see Bogdanovich as more than a shooter. Some people may not, and I think that's a respectable view. Um, I, I, I mean, Bogdanovich, when Trey Young has not been on the floor, I mean, they, they're able to completely stagger Bogdanovich and Trey Young and have Bogdanovich run point, run point in pick and roll and handoff. And you can use him in all these different ways as a shooter. Which Malik never does. A scorer. And, and I, I really think the biggest differentiator between the two outside of their sheer size is that Bogdanovich is used much more as a live dribble playmaker for others, whereas Malik Beasley, you know, turns it over a lot when he tries to really create for other people. 
Um, and I think, you know, that's not necessarily a knock on Malik. I mean, Malik just hasn't played enough, I think, to a point where he's really been able to develop that because when you're way too good for the G League or the D League or whatever, and you're not good enough to be in a legit NBA rotation for a very good team like the Nuggets, you struggle to get a lot of those live dribble playmaking reps. And I think that's something that if you're not playing a ton, it's tough to develop. And so, you know, I I don't think you're, you'd be crazy to hold the view that like you think Malik could be that like a year from now or two Mm. years from now, at least on the offensive end of the floor. But I I think the chasm is pretty big when you also factor in the length and what you can do defensively. Yeah. I I don't think Malik Beasley would be doing what Bogdanovich has been doing if he was on the Atlanta Hawks this year. In, 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 in this situation, I think, Bogdanovich is on, a, on another level. The question then, because that isn't necessarily in and of itself an indictment of Malik Beasley. The question then becomes, again, as we tie this to salary and player valuation, is, all right, is Bogdanovich a player that's worth more than the $18 million a year he's earning? And I would say yes. I would agree with that. Where he's maybe more, just to throw a value on it, like the, the 22 to 25 guy, you mm-hmm. know? Yep. If, if he were to be a free agent again this summer, like I would think that's what he would get. Yep. And and Malik, I do, I, I actually think his that contract is fine, but that's a big dip. There's a big difference in being a fine fifteen million dollar player and a twenty two to twenty five million dollar. The impact of that guy, and I, I think that's what I think that's what the difference is. And it, it is, it's because, the, I mean, you laid it out perfectly. It's maybe Bogdanovich and Beasley are equal three-point shooters. Maybe Beasley gets a little bit of a nod there. Maybe. Um, but Bogdanovich can create and Bogdanovich can defend better than, than Beasley can. And it kind of, it just kind of gets me thinking that do the Wolves need more out of that spot, that salary amount, that position, that that whole sort of thing, because as much as we're like pumping Bogdanovich's tires, he's still like a third best player on an average playoff team, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Hawks are like a legit good playoff team. And he's kind of been the second banana on that team. I mean, maybe you see Capella as the number two, yeah. um, but also like maybe it's just because the East sucks. And if you had like a one through 16 playoff team, maybe the Hawks are like, 10. 10 or 11. So yeah, that's like, what I was gonna say. yeah. So I, I guess it changes when you look at it through that lens, but I definitely think Bogdanovich is a better shooter than Beasley. And I may not have thought that before this series, because I actually was watching Bogdanovich and went back and watched. I, I just like loaded up pbpstats.com and just started watching his three point attempts mm-hmm. because some of the releases that he's had in this series, he's caught the ball like at his chest or oh, in front insane. of his face and it, the ball doesn't move. He just goes straight into his shot and it's, it's clay. It's clay. Yeah. It's what and, clay and Malik Malik's release. I definitely think is when you look at the NBA, you know, as a whole, his release is probably in like the 90th percentile, but I legitimately think Bogdanovich has like a 98, 99 percentile release. And so that's not, again, not at all a knock on Malik Beasley. I mm-hmm. think I personally think that I've been pleasantly surprised by the value that Malik Beasley's brought in the contract. For sure. When I it got signed, I thought it was too high. I will will willingly admit to that. Um, I, I was wrong about that, at least right now. Um, 
but you know, on all the wood. Yeah, but I mean, I, I will fully admit that I am completely biased in my like view of Malik Beasley as a player because of how sensitive in nature his legal situation is. Sure. So, but but on the floor, can like, I can I do some Malik Beasley uh, positives with things I think he's better than Bogdanovich in? Absolutely. I think he's a better transition player. And yep. specifically as a transition three-point shooter, you want to talk about 99th percentile. I think I think Malik Beasley is 99th percentile in sprinting up the floor, catching the ball on the move, and shooting a corner three. I don't think there are more than a couple players in the league that are better at that action than he is. Now, and go ahead. I was going to say corner three-point shooting. Like running yep. corner to corner, I don't think there's – 10 better players in the league than Malik Beasley at, mm-hmm. at like flying around the floor, sprinting your ass off right. everywhere on the floor and hunting open space. I've used that term before. Yeah. Like if he sees open space, he is sprinting to the For open sure. space, getting shot up and letting it go. And he's, he's great at that. And, and I, and what I love about Malik Beasley is like, he is going to want the ball every single time he's open. Because he just has that much confidence and belief in himself. And mm-hmm. as a shooter, that's exactly what you want. Right. And I think this all just goes back to like this idea, though, where like all these positives we put in the Malik pile are almost all related to shooting. Yep. You know? And, and that's at the end of the day, what we kind of hit is how valuable can you be if you're pretty much exclusively a shooter? Which... I think that's a fair way of describing Malik Beasley. He's pretty much exclusively a shooter. And and these other guys who he was kind of labeled as similar as, specifically Bogdanovich this summer, if you just look at the free agent class, you know, those players have shown to be back to our multidimensional term, right? Where you could see them impacting the game in numerous ways. And watching these playoffs, I'm seeing Bogdanovich impact the game on both ends, pretty clearly. I think, I mean, Derek Rose is playing well in this series, but their ability to just put him on put him on Rose and not have to, you know, whoever's the best, if Burks is the best guy out there, be able to do that. He's, ha- he's handled Randall on switches pretty well. He's pretty good at walling up. Like, that, when I was watching one game and I literally wrote in my notes, Bogdanovich is way better than Beasley, was just because I kind of came to the conclusion that they're similar level shooters, and now Bogdanovich is showing me a lot more on the margins or on other elements. Of yeah. The- Not to switch gears a little bit, switch it. but do you view Joe Harris as a sixth man? No. Do you? No. So where, then where why, you- why do we view Malik Beasley as a sixth man? I think that Malik Beasley's... I like where you're going in I, the outline here, too. I think this, is Malik's, good. this is good. I think Malik's skill set is much closer to Joe Harris's than it is to Bogdan Bogdanovich's. Agreed. Both elite, elite shooters. Uh, off this, off handoff, screens, spotting up, elite, elite, elite. Both don't do a whole lot off the dribble. Like they can, like they can do... Right, they, they both can do some off the dribble. They're both limited athletes in the sense that like they're not explosive, but if you're out of position, like they can get by you. Yeah, I would say kind of a different way. This is totally me just nitpicking. Like, I feel like Joe Harris can get to the basket on strength and his size a little bit. And Malik, while he doesn't have that strength and size, I would say he's like a little an quicker. explosive 
yeah, is an explosive athlete though in ways like. Yeah. No. Like now we're doing the defining athleticism thing, which is a stupid <laughs> conversation. But but like, I but do you yeah. agree though that I think that those skill sets are more comparable? Yeah. Like so when people say, okay, I think Malik Beasley could be like an elite six man. I think of a six mm-hmm. man as like more of a Lou Williams or Bogdan Bogdanovich type, where like they have a lot more live dribble, you know, yeah. creation, and they're coming into the game and they're going to play a little bit with the starters, but predominantly they're going to be playing and being forced to be the primary creator for the rest of the bench or just be a guy that's like, yeah, it's a distributor. It's a guy who isn't just a shoot. Like when, when people say, and I've, I've said this too, but like when people start talking about Malik Beasley as, as being the sixth man, well then my question is who's playing point guard. That's kind of my point in this whole thing. Right. I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, and it's ultimately why I think there's a pretty big fly in the ointment of just the overall Malik Beasley sort of thing, because I think it would be best if Malik Beasley was a sixth man. And I think like the quote unquote best role for Malik Beasley or the given the other pieces on the Wolves roster, it would make a ton of sense for him to be in that role that D'Lo was in at the season. If we could just like copy paste things around, but I'm with you. Like I actually love D'Lo as a sixth man. Yeah. Like he was legitimately awesome as totally, and and he helped he helped that I mean that Nas Vanderbilt, Wancho and J-Mac. he made me eat my words about Wancho. <laughs> that's how like that's how good he was. But yeah, and, it, and so maybe that's the reality. Is it is it is it some sort of stagger? It's just it's hard to it's hard to piece this all together. Yeah, and I guess that takes me kind of into the the Brooklyn conversation that I wanted to have a little bit about like. And it kind of ties into like your like a concept we had, you know, back or a talk we had back in November or December about these kind of projecting the, you know, the viability of like all of these all offense, no defense bucket teams. And so with with Brooklyn and the Timberwolves, I actually think that they're more similar than we think in terms of. The style. It's funny because I've I've actually read your notes on this, but somebody's listening to this right now and is like, Jack is high. Maybe I am. <laughs> That's for Dane to know and me to know and you not to know. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But but yeah, I mean, they both have three guys who you could throw the ball to on the perimeter or in the post, hopefully, and just say clear out, get out of the way, and you could get a bucket, right? And they and they each have an elite spot up threat who, when the floor gets collapsed, is you know, could be in a position where he's wide open very frequently. Joe Harris, you're talking about. Joe Harris and Malik. Yeah. Like, I think that, like... Big you, three, big three. Big three. Oh, I said big four. I mean, don't... I I, I was going to put a note in here saying don't disrespect my boy Joe Harris like that. But, I mean, you know, the other value that I think of having an elite spot-up threat with these three guys that can put pressure, you know, on the defense from anywhere on the floor is that you can use those shooters in kind of dummy action. And I think we've seen Nash do that a lot with Joe Harris. Well, where they'll kind of run like a weak side, you know, pin down just to occupy, you know, a guy on the weak side block so that they can isolate KD with no backside help in the post or something like that. Or like the Timberwolves could do the same thing with cat. Like the way that you can use three, just very high level scoring threats can make life easier for your spot-up shooter. And then the way you can use your spot-up shooter who can run off screens while also, you know, just stand in the corner and literally wait for the ball to rotate. Like, it, it's similar in nature. And Yeah, I, let, let's distill this down even even simpler, though. 
it's it's the idea of having three great isolation options, right? In KD, Harden, and Kyrie, and the Wolves having three great isolation options in Cat, Ant, and D'Lo, and then having shooting pieces or pieces around them that kind of bolster the way those players isolate. Yeah, but who I think are they're so good they're so good of a shooter that they like make life easier for other people you right. know where they have a legitimate shooting gravity where the defense has to pay attention to them at all times which is joe harrison malik correct so that's the fourth so the, yeah I, so, i'm not saying that they're on the same level obviously no no it's archetypes right but, I, I get what you're saying i i totally get what you're getting at here it's just it it's just at the end of the day we're, we're comparing the timberwolves to the team who i think is most likely to win the championship and and I don't think I don't think you're wrong. I think that you are describing the archetype, and I think you are describing at least Rosen's Gerson Rosa's current vision for how this this roster comes and together. The style of way the way they want to play. I, I think you're I think you're totally onto something there. The issue I find in it is the idea that individually or as a group, D'Lo, Cat, and Ant are that good of isolation players. And like, if you if you look it up, this I, I I looked it up of the sixty three players who ran seventy five plus seventy five or more isolations that finished in a shot or a pass. Kevin Durant was second in efficiency in that. James Harden was fifth, and Kyrie Irving was sixth. So they were three top six <laughs> isolation players in the league. Ridiculous. And and what the Wolves have of that on that same list of the sixty three players is they have D'Lo who was thirtieth. They have Cat, who was 36th, and they have Ant, who was 38th. So those, in terms of points per possession, they were all like average. They were all like average volume isolation players in the league. And and it, it's, I'm not even saying, obviously they're very far away from KD, Kyrie, and Harden, but that's a pretty substantial gap between where those two are from mediocre to, you know, 90, 90th percentile, whatever it might be, where, where all those guys are. And it just kind of comes down to this idea that how much better can D'Lo, Cat, and Ant all be at those things, right? Well, and, and that, and I think that's the thing that we got to peel back on and go, yeah, how good can D'Lo get that's at totally it? That's totally fair. How good can, because I'm not saying they can't. I'm saying they were, they were, at, they were 50th percentile isolation players this year. And I feel like for this this vision that you you are highlighting that Gerson Rosa seems to be leaning into is relying on those three guys being eightieth percentile isolation players. In the last two months, where do you think Anthony Edwards would be on that list if you filtered it? Actually, what's funny is I know I know it would be it would be a lot worse than you think because a lot of his good isolation numbers actually came at the beginning of the year, went under Saunders. He was like 99th percentile in isolation because he would, under Saunders, he did pick and rolls so much more than when he isolated. And then when he did isolate, which was like once every seven times, his isolation numbers were were insane. So I actually don't think that Ant's numbers in isolation are, they're, they're in, still not in, at that level. Okay, in theory... My, my overall theory about how the offenses are similar mm-hmm. is that the reason why I also, so I've, I've bet on the Nets to win the Eastern Conference Finals and the championship. 
The reason why I felt so confident making those bets is because if they, if with when those when those four are on the floor, pick whoever, whatever fifth banana you want to put on the floor with them, mm-hmm. if they lock in and treat every possession equally, they can get an open shot or get fouled on every single possession down the floor. Mm-hmm. If the Timberwolves lock in with those four and say, I don't know, maybe it's John Collins or maybe it's you know, J- or Jaden McDaniels. Put Jaden McDaniels sure. as the number five. I legitimately... You're a whole playoff core. Sure. <laughs> I legit... <laughs> You're not going to let me hear the end of that. Uh, I legitimately think that the Timberwolves, that they locked in on every possession with how smart of an offensive coach Chris Finch is, that they could get an open shot or get fouled on every single possession, in theory, if they treated every single possession the same. And sure, I, the numbers may not bear it out from this season. I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm just saying where they were this season. Yeah, I'm just – my whole point is in theory, I think that they would be a lot better than all in – they were all in the 30s, right? Yeah, uh, but uh, 30s of 60. Yeah. So like, I, so I, you know, I, the middle of the pack of high-volume I think players. that they all three of them individually as talents are all like 75 percentile plus. So, so this is – this is, is where I would go with point. this. So, so Cat the year prior, no injured wrist. The you know the the year under Ryan, he was that. He was of of the eighty eight players who did over sixty isolations that year. Cat was tenth. Harden was ninth. Kyrie was eleventh. So he was literally playing in isolation and much lower volume, but he's playing as and well. And some as of those his guys. isolation, for me, my view of isolation could also include just like one on one in the post. Sure, and if you that would that would further bolster that too. So. I don't think Cat ranking this year 36th out of 63 players in isolation situations is a fair representation of how good Cat is. And that's initially what I was putting off. Yep. So I would say he's, you know, call it 90th percentile or something there. With Ant, it's all about belief, right? You know, I can't make a statistical argument. You can't make a statistical argument for the pro or con of it. It's how much do we believe in him, you know, kind of putting it together and getting there. I, I think... There's definitely a world where Anthony Edwards, a likely world where he is up in that, what'd you say, 80th percentile? Like, that seems likely with Anthony Edwards to come. Maybe it's not next year, maybe another year from then. The one in a weird way that I have some, I have the most concern about is the guy who I think is labeled as the ISO guy. The ISO guy is D'Angelo Russell, who I just don't think that's his his main strength. I think it's something he can get to whenever he wants. It just doesn't go for profit in aggregate as much. Maybe it's better in crutch time or all those sort of things. But his, his year in Brooklyn, which was his best year, right? Like he was, he was 54th of the 66, 54th of 66 players in isolation efficiency of the 66th highest volume players. Andrew Riggins was 55th. He was at that level. That 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 was that was D'Lo's best year in the league. That's where he was in terms of efficiency and isolation. Now, is would, that is that distortedly low? Probably a little bit. But I would just if you were if you were coming on here and pounding the table that says all three of these guys can be top tier isolation players, Cat, D'Lo, and Ant. That's the one where I would go. I feel confidently saying two of them can be top tier yeah. isolation talents, but and, I, and it doesn't even need to be every night, too, right? Like, yeah, because D'Lo on some nights is for sure. D'Lo's elite at it some nights, and that's my point. Mm-hmm. Is like because he's shown flashes of that, 
being really, really elite as a scorer down the stretch. I mean, you know, the way that I think about it is kind of like if you're a fan of another team and the game's in the balance, what is a player where you're like, shit, when he has the ball in his hands at the end of the game? Right. I have been in the shoes as a Timberwolves fan thinking, shit, at the end of a game when D'Angelo, like the, the game yeah. when he was at Golden State where he had 50 on us. I mean, I was a wreck because I was so pissed that like we didn't get him during free agency. And then he comes and does that in like the first game that you play against him. But I mean, I also, an important point of this and is they like dropping the big every time and D'Lo could just pull up from mid range. Don't get, get me started. <laughs> I also think that efficiency does not equal respect you get from the defense. For sure. Because my whole point about this doesn't necessarily mean they all have to be as efficient as KD, Harden, and Kyrie, because those guys, arguably, all three of them are top 10 isolation players in the history of the NBA. For sure. I'm talking about getting enough respect from the defense where if you put any three, any of those three in isolation, where you could get a good shot or a foul on almost any possession mm-hmm. down the floor, and I tend to believe that when, when if you put any of those three in isolation, whether you have like D'Lo or Cat in the post, Ant above the break, however you want to do it. They're going to get that attention. Exactly my point. Yeah, I, I'm, and, I'm with you there. And so, and I think in, in the playoffs, like you can say it comes down to defense, can come down to whatever you want. My view of the playoffs is it comes down to which team can execute better on offense. And the reason why I picked Brooklyn to win is because I think Brooklyn is going to execute better on offense than any other team in the NBA. Mm -hmm. And their executing offense, I think, will beat the Bucs defense or the Sixers defense or the Lakers or Clippers or whoever the hell comes out of the – you know what I'm saying? And And to the Timberwolves' point, that's – this is you coming on to the dark side. You're you're pro all O, no D. You're getting there. I think the best offense – beats the best defense in this NBA more times than it doesn't in the playoffs. And that's the bet. That's like the if, bet if you go- could be the number one offense yeah. and the number one defense, you are picking the number one offense almost every single time. Yeah, of course. I, I, and if anybody disagrees with that, that's just wrong. Um, the The idea is, and, and the counter the counterpoint, which you would acknowledge this, is, is that we've seen Dallas be the number one offense and the number 19 defense and be a seven seed last year or what it is this year. And what I I put those in the notes somewhere else. It's like the other teams here who are in the, like Portland, Portland Portland. being 29th in defense this season, Atlanta, I think was 21st in defense. It's, it's, it's all those, it's all those sort of teams where it's like, yeah, you're right. The best offense is going to beat the best defense, but you better be the best offense. And, and even then you might run into a Dallas sort of thing. So that's where I'm at with the Wolves is I'm like, they're clearly moving that direction. I'm going to embrace it. You know, I'm going to see like, how do you make this work without a lot of defensive personnel? And how, how do you like kind of cobble it together? There's ways. Here's a, here's a blueprint. Look at Jack just told you about it. It's Brooklyn, you know, like how do the Wolves do that? I'm just ultimately, you know, skeptical of, can they be elite, elite, like top three? Can this, group that you're just Timberwolves group be top five on offense. Cause that's probably what they're going to need to have to be, to be meaningfully, you know, well, to make the playoffs almost if they're going to have that bad of a defense. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I think it's really tough to just like sit here and say, we know exactly how, you know, the Timberwolves are going to play, you know, on 
offense as oh, yeah. a team because sure. I mean, how many, you know, how many times, how, like how many times have we seen that core five play together? Maybe <laughs> four times, three times. I mean, when you when you look at the last, when you look at the last, you know, what is it, two months of the season here? Twenty two games. I think it was D'Lo was back for. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why this only has twenty. 20 teams in here probably because it's the playoffs but yeah. um yeah if i filter you're just trying to figure out how many minutes i could tell you like that core group played like 10 minutes together the whole season yeah well yeah and i mean the other thing that i was going to look at too is like just looking at like how good the timberwolves offense was the last two months of the season like well if you look at the last two months of the season here minnesota was they were 11th right yeah i mean they're 11th in offense. Don't need a computer, Jack. You just I mean, ask me. I know. I mean, and you don't even have Malik Beasley there, and you don't have, yeah, you know, for sure, and you, and you don't have D'Lo for all of that time. You do either. have D'Lo for all that time. You do. When did he come yeah. back? That's 22 games. It's the, it's the April 5th. Oh, I, I had the I had the last two months filtered here, so it was whatever. Well, I'm just saying they were so, they were 11th when Stilo came back they were 11th and 27th I believe is what it was from Yeah, and like you on. and you don't have Malik. And I'm just saying like I think Malik adds another element to the offense. For sure, it would make that, it better. Yeah. It would make the and it would make the defense worse and they would be playing teams who aren't tanking all the time. So there's like it, it's going to go both ways. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. I I just don't think I don't think they're close right now to being a top five offense. I think it's possible, but Finch has really got to finagle it. I think they got to make some of these moves in the offseason. I don't, and this is why, you know, I don't believe in the, if they roll this back over next year and they just kind of add Malik back to the mix. I Personally, I don't think that's enough. I don't think that's enough to make, you know, to make the playoffs because I don't think the offense is going to be as good as we want. We think it can be in what you're describing here. And I think we just know that the defense is going to remain somewhat problematic for this team. So, yep. And, and, and I think that there, there's obviously one enormous wild card, which is the draft lottery. Yeah. Three weeks from last night. Who's counting? <laughs> um, Super Bowl, Super Bowl. What is it? Super Bowl Tuesday, Super Bowl Tuesday. Um, but at any rate, like that's your four one wild weeks. card. Four weeks. It's the 29th. Is it? I thought it was June the 22nd. 29th. I could be doing my math wrong, which is very no, no, I think the draft is... The... I graduated last week. I don't even know how to do math anymore. <laughs> um, anyways. It's coming. Um, it's coming. Yeah, so you have that wild card, and then Bull Marrow has legitimately been excellent for Barcelona. And the last... I, I, the, like, I got the second the... half of their season, he has been legitimately excellent. And I know everybody, shot Rashad Phillips, said Luca was an average player and he was the MVP of the Euro league and he's every bit the MVP of the Euro league. Like he's an MVP in the NBA mm-hmm. caliber player. Like if, if bull marrow, like everything he's shown in my opinion can translate perfectly well to the NBA. If he's yeah. legitimately very good in the Euro league playing with one of the best teams in the Euro league with a bunch of other legitimate NBA guys playing guys who might have phased out of the NBA, but are still probably good enough to play. In the It'll NBA. make the Wolves better. I get what you're saying. Like th- that's also a wild card. Where like, then you start looking at if the Timberwolves are going to platoon swap like they have been. You have another guy that immediately raises the floor. Maybe I mean and the ceiling, but especially focusing on the floor of the of the bench. 
And if you have a, if Bulmero can shoot, I mean, I don't know how much people that are listening to this have, have looked into Bulmero, but go watch his highlights and, and follow uh, at Wolves Clips on Twitter. He's been tweeting a bunch of Bulmero highlights, which is borderline propaganda at this point, but I love it. Um, I mean, you have enough offensive power, firepower on the bench with like Bulmero and Noel. And then, you know, if the Wolves want to bring Beasley off the bench and you have Collins and you don't have to give up Beasley for Collins. How does that happen? Rubio and a future first. I'm just saying, I'm not trying to be the negative guy. No, I know you're not. You're literally doing the thing to the elevator where you push all the floors and then it's all lit up. I'm trying, every I'm trying to like, present options so people yeah. can can think of it themselves yeah. or get excited and be like, right. ooh, okay, I want to go think about this, so let me go down this road. We're like, right. I'm just trying to lay out different roads. And there is certainly that road is there where where they things can go well and it, and, and we haven't even talked about the major button of hitting the, the draft lottery, but like I'm just it, assuming yeah. we don't get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fair operating assumption. It it you know, it it's out there. And and Finch is a really good coach, I think. You know, that coach should be able to Synergize a lot of these things together. It and they weren't running his full stuff. I, I yeah, like I don't think the defense will be remotely similar next season. And I don't either. I mean, you you saw it more with like like you were talking about there with kind of the who's on first with the point of attack defense that you were talking about earlier with yeah. McDaniel. I mean, I think they'll get more creative with that. But too like you think about Anthony Edwards and the way he progressed last season. Didn't have a training camp. Just got thrown into the fire. I've heard this line before. <laughs> had a had a coaching change. Oh, oh he did. <laughs> I mean, it just, everyone says that all and, the time. And his efficiency somehow got better. So I think the more yeah, he got better. The more comfortable he gets in Finch's whole thing this summer, where he can be riding in his Rolls Royce down Lindale. <laughs> you know, you know. I I just I think that there are more higher levels to almost every individual offensive player on the Timberwolves that can be reached under Chris Finch based on, based on the sample size that we have and what we saw this year. I feel very confident saying that. Um, It's just about how much does that move the the needle? needle. Because they're they're, the starting point of where the needle is, is worst team in the NBA. And it started moving a little bit to like fourth worst team in the NBA, like kind of, but whatever. There's just, there's a big amount of, swing that has to happen with that needle to get from worst team in the NBA to eight. Which is why I think this is a fun exercise because you have all of your roads Mm -hmm. and I have all of mine. And I think everybody that listens to this podcast, there are going to be people on the highest of roads, people on the lowest and Mm -hmm. literally everything in between, which is why it's fun. Cause I think you have this time to evaluate everything. There's a bunch of different directions you can go. And even though the Timberwolves, I hate to rain on everybody's parade, but more likely than not, I would say there is a maximum difference of like two guys different on this roster next year, unless oh, they hit the lot, unless they, right. unless they win the draft lottery, then different. that changes. On the highest road, it gets weird. <laughs> it gets very weird. Yes, but like in, in the most <laughs> likely of roads, yeah. I think there's a maximum of two guys different this on the roster, and that could include Bulmero. Mm-hmm. And even if those guys come back, I still think, in my personal opinion there is some serious needle moving that can still be done offensively, especially as it relates to the mm-hmm. consistency of the offense. And I think the defense over the course of a season isn't going to be a whole lot different. But I think in the playoffs, if the Timberwolves practice in games throughout the year, just kind of like throwing random shit at the wall for a possession here or there, 
you know, just trying different lineups and just kind of where kind of guys are on the floor and who they're trying to guard. I think that that can help you in the playoffs in a sense that you have some practice kind of mucking up games. And I mean, that's what the Hawks have done. I mean, they've, for the most part, I mean, they've kind of run a base offense. I won't get into it, but like they've mucked it up and made it tough and thrown different looks at a team. And it's like, that really helps if you're, if you have a talent deficiency or, you know, if another team has one predominantly really, really, really good player and you can just make it that much dif- more difficult by having some experience mucking it up. I think, I think those are the two things for me that I'm looking at the most that I think where the needle for those individual things can move the most. Right. We'll see. So. We gotta, we'll have a, we'll have a whole summer of it. He's Jack Borman at JR Borman 13 on Twitter. I'm Dane and I will be back on i think i'm recording with brit on sunday so look for that other sunday night or monday morning and we'll be back here with a little bit more of a consistent cadence for the pod here about three times a week through the rest of the nba playoffs so jack seriously thank you for coming on we went super long um but whatever oh there's my there's my phone ringing <laughs> um thanks again for doing it and uh i'll talk to you soon sounds great all right peace out Feeling man, I hope it never stop, yeah Green it hard so you can find me in the crowd, yeah, yeah Don't let standards ever out